0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and hating your spouse. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we cannot get off of our minds. And today, you've got me, Shannon Paulus, a senior editor at Slate. This week, I'm speaking to Heather Haverleski, author of the book Foreverland on the divine tedium of marriage. You might also recognize her name from the long-running advice column she writes, ask polly it is really easy to have a black and white view of relationships you have a good marriage or you have a bad marriage you find the right person to be with or you've accidentally kind of paired up with a bad match and things are bad you can spot the people who are in bad marriages they bicker in public they admit that they aren't doing well that's the kind of story we hear right a good marriage is blissful. Heather Haverleski complicates this view by giving us an incredibly intimate view of the inside of her marriage, or at least a snapshot in time of her marriage. She alternates in the book between explaining that her husband, Bill, is the most handsome, wonderful person on earth and that he can be Quote, exactly the same as a heap of laundry, smelly, inert, almost sentient, but not quite. When Forever Land came out last year, the reaction to that kind of language to describe your partner, it was kind of intense. The View, for example, ran a segment called Woman Claims She Hates Husband in Memoir is Here, a new book by a journalist, wife, and mom who reflects in her, on her 16 years of marriage, writing about how she hates her husband, calls him a smelly heap of laundry, and a snoring heap of meat, and claims anyone considering getting married is a massacre. Brian, did your wife write that? <laughs> <laughs> Yet she also calls it divine. Yes, thank you. I actually need to read that. <laughs> Can you relate to anything she writes here?
1: You know what? She, um, we got snippets of this book, and they use the word hate. And she uses the word heap a lot. Did you notice that she calls him a heap of this and a heap of that? But marriages work.
0: Now, Foreverland is out in paperback. Um, I'm actually engaged to be married myself. And so I thought this was the perfect time to catch up with Heather about why she wrote this book in the first place um, and what she thinks of that response now. We also get into what to do when your husband is actually truly being a little bit of a patriarchal jerk. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dig into all of this with Heather. listeners if you're loving the show and want to hear more subscribe to our feed new episodes come out every thursday morning while you're there check out our other episodes too like last week's about the insidious underbelly of ballet this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg to talk about her book Forever Land on the divine tedium of marriage. It's a really excellent book and Heather, we're thrilled to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here.
0: For listeners who might not be familiar with who you are and with your work, why did the divine tedium of marriage interest you as a topic? What do you think was missing from our cultural conception of marriage?
1: I had read a few memoirs, marriage memoirs. I also just have written an advice column, Ask Polly, for a long time, and um, and I'm a married person. So I sort of spent about a year just soaking in how strangely sugarcoated our stories about marriage are and how often people back away, even close friends sometimes back away from telling you uh, about the trouble in their marriage. Um, I had a friend who got divorced, and afterwards she said, you never find out how unhappy people are until they're divorced. Um, And pretty much everyone is unhappy in marriage, which I also did not believe was the case. Um, But it just struck me that marriage stories are either told from the perspective of someone who's divorced, and then they're told very brutally, or they're told from the perspective of someone who's still in the marriage and absolutely must keep up appearances and be positive and upbeat. And, and even, I mean, obviously there are marriages that are amazing and there are a lot of people who do not overanalyze what's going on within their marriage because that's how they keep their marriage together. Plenty of people live that way. Um, and so of course they sound, uh, sugarcoated to someone like me who maybe tells too much of the truth everywhere I go. Um, but for me, uh, I didn't want to read a book About marriage that felt like bullshit. I wanted to read something that felt real and that reflected how difficult marriage can be and how when you move through that difficulty, you sometimes find yourself in a more positive, intimate, exciting, enriching space with someone.
0: What was your process for writing this book? I'm just imagining you having like a Google doc open where you start taking like your mundane complaints and, and chronicling them. So you, you don't end up in this sugar-coated place. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I did, I probably did uh, have a reaction to a kind of an allergic reaction to my own sugar-coated places and my sentimentality. And I've been married for, I think 17 years now. That's You know, that's a lot of years. That's a lot of changes. Um, So I do think that when I was writing my book, I was really trying to find sort of either the core moments of reaching a new level of understanding about how to survive as a married person, or I was trying to find those moments that things kind of broke apart and. Uh, You know, I was attracted to the most challenging moments, probably more than I would be at now, having gone through the process of writing that. It's like you're looking at something that's enormous and trying to describe one dimension of it. You know, it always kind of felt like, how do I capture the complexity of this? I really wanted to write something that didn't sound like a Hallmark card or a therapy session. I wanted you to get people into the experience of how does it feel to be chained to someone who is amazing and terrible at the same time, just like you are.
0: As you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, Glennis McNichols' wonderful book, No One Tells You This, which is kind of a little bit of the opposite of your book in some ways, in that it's about how wonderful it is to be single in your 40s. And she has this scene at the end where she's like, On this writing retreat, and she's walking around with horses, and it's like a beautiful time of day. And that's where the book ends. And then, either in like an epilogue or on a podcast, she talks about, like, well, then my life started to like fall apart a little bit after that beautiful moment. And like, this is kind of a story I was telling myself. And like, that's correct, but it's also correct that it's more complicated.
1: It's interesting. After I finished my book and it came out, I started to really question my, even my habit of telling stories about myself in order to make my role in my life more comfortable. I mean, on the one hand, of course, you have to do that to survive, um, and to get along with people and to fulfill your responsibilities as an adult. Clearly, you know, you need a story as to why you should do anything, um, But I think that, you know, your marriage can become kind of calcified and rigid, just like your personality can become calcified and rigid if you're not open to the natural changes that are happening, both in the relationship and within yourself. You know, when you tell yourself a story about, well, we're like this and we do things like this and it works, you know, and... I love him because of this and I just love that and it's the best and I don't love anyone else anymore and I don't look at other people and I don't think about other people. You know, so you can wake up one day and you sort of feel like, you know, suddenly you think, how much of my uh, wild, strange personality have I suppressed in support of this two-headed monster that I've created called my marriage? Um, And I think that you know, often you will find that there are a lot of beautiful things that you've suppressed. And then you might also find that there are a lot of things that you have benefited from and that you're actually kind of standing on solid ground that is created partially by your marriage. I mean, I think a lot of people discover that, um, when they get divorced sometimes, um, in the process of auditing a relationship. And just like in the process of, of going through therapy, you understand, you start to understand, Oh, you know, I actually need this and this story. So, so basically you, you can look at your stories in a new light and say, this story actually doesn't serve me anymore. Or this story, story keeps my spouse in a strange role that doesn't suit him. And so you constantly have to be throwing those things out and saying, How can I honor the new person that's in front of me, both myself and my partner?
0: I mean, I've read your work through many phases of my life and romantic partnerships. But to the folks who write into you who are like maybe in a messy relationship or not in a relationship or in a relationship that they don't want to be in, you have this assuredness that like you can find someone who you enjoy talking to and who expands your horizons and who is just hot and cool and and all of this stuff and and that comes out like when you're talking about your wedding how you kind of have this like slightly messy wedding where you're pregnant and it's hot and your hair like isn't your favorite and then you and your new husband are just like extraordinarily happy after that um and so I love how your work has space for those, like, super, super romantic moments. Oh, I'm also engaged right now, so this is, like... Ooh. (laughs) And (laughs) I, like... (laughs) When you were talking at the beginning of the book about, you know, you're, like, elves sipping champagne in New Zealand and you're happy and, like, you don't know what's coming. I was, like, oh, no, this is me. So I wanted to ask, uh, is there anything, like, you wish you knew when you were in that stage? Like... Do you you think that um, yourself at 34, 35, making this commitment
1: should have known something different about marriage? You know, I think it's helpful to know this much, at least. In the very beginning, you do have this sense that anything that happens is something that you're going to be putting up with for the rest of your life. You know, that's not, it's sort of true and not true. There are things that really don't change and there are things that just do change. And the things, some of the things that you think are gonna be so oppressive are actually just great. And a lot of the things that you think are gonna be easy and great become oppressive because you grow into a different kind of person. I guess the most useful advice I would give to someone who, is just starting out is kind of like, you know, don't take everything too seriously or personally because it's all fluid and it will all change. I think the major advice I have is not just to stand up for yourself because I feel like a lot of people don't um I don't know, we're in this place where people feel like things should either either work or, or not work and you don't have to actually speak up in personal situations. I feel like there's a lot of talk about why marriages are inherently let's say patriarchal or why you know women are doomed in marriage and are just automatically happier outside of marriage because a man will always take advantage and will always you know be outside of the house while you hold things down at home um Every marriage is a creation between two people and two people get to decide, you know, it's a work of art that you create with one other person. You have a conversation that evolves about how you want to live and you have to be assertive within that conversation if you want the piece of the work of art to be to your liking.
0: One thing that I've really like had to do in my relationship is take the idea that the man I'm with has been raised in the patriarchy out of the equation and just kind of like speak to him like a human being and not like, oh, you're a man and you're doing this because like you're a man and you're shitty because he's not. (laughs) And everything that you're saying about marriage sounds like not counter to this idea, but maybe like a really helpful expansion for people to hear. I'm thinking of the Sheryl Sandberg advice of like, The most important decision you'll make for your career is to pick your partner. And I think in a lot of ways that's good advice, but it sort of sets up this idea that like you have to if you get the starting conditions of your marriage right, everything will be okay. If you can pick someone who's good, then they will always be good and you will always be good.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, it's a negotiation. You can take off those sort of like jaundiced, I see the patriarchy everywhere goggles and say, okay, so we're talking about we want an egalitarian marriage. We want a marriage uh, where two people are equally sharing the tasks that are in front of them. There's still these moments when basically sexist assumptions come into play and you have to say, am I the default parent because I work from home? Or am I the default parent for this kind of task because I'm a woman? Because I don't want to live that way. I think we need to play to our strengths. I mean, that was something that I said over and over again. And my husband, to his credit, was always like, oh, no, 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 that's not what I want. You are not the default. And there were also ways that I basically said, why don't you do this thing that's kind of a traditionally woman thing? just as a rule, so that when this kind of challenge comes up, you're the one who's doing it. He takes the kids to all their dentist appointments. I mean, I've started to take them to the doctor because they're teenagers now and they're girls. But there are things like that where it's sort of like going against the grain feels right. The other thing that was weird, I mean, just in terms of seeing the patriarchy everywhere, when I first was married to my husband, he would just say sexist things out of the blue he's like the most feminist least sexist man i know in many ways i was sort of waking up to my internalized misogyny and then i would hear him say things that the kinds of things that i used to say like once we were at the school and he said something like she dresses like she's trying to be a teenager again but you know educating someone in your house is important you know if you don't want to hear If you don't want to live inside like a misconceptions of what a woman should be, you know, I mean, first you correct yourself with these things and then you correct, you know, the people who are important to you. You know, if you could have a sense of humor about it. I mean, one of the bad things about where we are as a culture at at this moment is that the Internet makes it really hard to have a, a sense of humor about anything. You just feel kind of backed into the corner with social media and backed into the corner with everything. And it's hard not to be humorless. I mean, I think that when my book came out, I was humorless about the reception to my book in a way that I'm not anymore because I just, it was so important to me, you know, that I was just like, Mwah. people can't handle it when a woman tells the truth, you know? And I, I mean, I agree with that. I, it absolutely is the case, But it's, you know, it's hard to talk about this stuff when you're just like, you know, you feel like you're in a trench, you know, as opposed to just looking at what's happening and saying, yes, the world has not changed completely. Big surprise.
0: We are going to take a break here. But if you want to hear more from Heather and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment. Today, we're going to be giving you a little bit of the behind the scenes on Heather's popular advice column, Ask Polly. It's one of my favorite things on the internet, so I was really excited to ask her a little bit more about how it came to be and how it works. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Welcome back to the waves. There was a huge backlash to your book when it initially came out around, from my vantage point, a a New York Times essay in which you compare your husband to a dirty pile of laundry. Um, A couple sentences before saying how hot he is,
1: (laughs) Um, a lot of people missed that second part. It's very easy to have a negative reaction to someone saying... Yeah, sure. I hate my husband. Obviously the problem with reading something that's supposed to be funny out of context or not continuing to read the thing and understanding the tone of it, it, it just sounds like something completely different than what it is. That chapter was really about enjoy, almost enjoying how annoying a person can be. Making gentle fun of the fact that there are times when you encounter a human being as if they're just an obstacle as you're navigating through your house and through your life. I mean, the thing is, all of this stuff is sort of like half, let's make some jokes and half like, let's forgive ourselves for being human animals who just don't know what's happening around us most of the time. There's a state that you get into. I mean, it's everything is connected. It's like, There's a state you get into when you're trying to clarify what you meant by a piece of writing where you're just, you know, you end up sounding like the thing that you are trying to defend because you're taking this overly serious angle on something that was only supposed to be comedic and fun and sort of heartwarming to begin with.
0: What I'm hearing you say that you've been able to do with more distance is like almost treat that like audience bad reaction with compassion the same way you would your husband if he says something that's out of touch or in in the same way that you have yourself you talk a bit in the book about your own internalized misogyny and, and watching before you become a mom watching moms and how you call them like jumpy women and you observe that like they speak to children and kind of this like nails on a chalkboard voice and unpacking that for yourself.
1: The other thing that's really true is that marriage is, it takes so many different kinds, parts of yourself to like make a marriage robust and intimate and good. And I think that I kind of through the process of accepting that my book was misunderstood by people who hadn't read it, you know, which is just a very, you know, 2022 kind of experience to have. I was in this defensive state, like, why are people so moralistic about marriage? It's so stupid. But I also think that, you know, it's hard to interrogate your marriage or your relationship. It's very risky to do that. You've made a commitment and now you're taking out a magnifying glass. There are ways that marriage is supposed to be a thing that you don't necessarily interrogate that much because your desire to be a full big person who is passionate and difficult and interesting and wants to grow often stands in the way of having the most peaceful marriage possible. And being an open person in the world means making connections with other people, which is a, can, can literally be a threat to your marriage, right? All kinds of things can happen to you that can feel threatening to your marriage. And even though I was arguing, you have to come at these things headlong and look at them and face them and be as honest as possible. I mean, my belief is that that is the path to having a resilient marriage is- you know, the intimacy that it takes to admit that you're a full person. You're still an animal. You're still out in the world looking at other people and talking to other people. And if you're feeling fully alive, you're going to sometimes sound like someone who doesn't want to be married because why wouldn't you sometimes want to be a different kind of person in the world?
0: It's also just such an internet way of thinking about things like the 800 word argument that like, this is how you should eat pizza. This is how you should be married. Like, this is what this woman is getting wrong in her New York Times. That's absolutely true. It's so
1: funny, because I this morning, I was thinking I was I just saw some op ed headlines, in the New York Times. And I thought, there's nothing destroys both your writing and your thinking more quickly than writing op eds. It's just like terrible for you. And I mean, when you defend when you go on the internet to defend a position, you're just necessarily you know going to be cast in the role of picking up like oh you're you're carrying a white flag now and you know hey you're on team red you better get over there it's not good for your critical capacities to even be in the conversation a lot of times which is too bad and i th- and I do think that like When you're like me and you talk too much and you're an extrovert and you write too much, you're just like, there was a time, but you know, most people who have the kinds of careers that you and I have, journalism ish, you know, I mean, I don't want to put that on you. That's me. I'm the journalism ish person. You're just constantly sounding off about things until, you know, you have to step back and say, hold on, like, who, what, like, why am I not? Either crafting an argument that's careful or just shutting the hell up. You know, I think that my, you know, I've had times in my career when I wrote a lot of cultural stuff and it was, it's almost like I look at it and I say, it kind of started out smart and then I, it, I really got stupider for a while. I wasn't discovering new ideas, I wasn't in like this good, connected, place where I could synthesize big thoughts and big ideas and big emotions in the same way. I mean, the, the benefit of writing Polly is that when, when someone walks up and says, here's my problem, it, it's such a um, kind of beautiful, connected, generous space that all of these good ideas and good feelings and, and weirdness and jokes can come into it because it's like this intimate It's like this intimate space between you and the letter writer. Um, It's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying, how, you know, how Twitter can feel and how social media can feel. And I mean, I do think that the culture is changing now. Um, It is shifting into kind of like a a place where people are sort of craving a a higher level and more intimate uh, conversation.
0: You know, you're talking about like, you don't want the, patriarchy glasses where you're spotting the patriarchy you don't want them on all the time but like y- you don't want to like lose that like piece of your analytical toolbox that's not right you you don't want to check them out and i've been writing op-eds since i was i went to college in 2008 so i've been grown up in that op-ed space my brain was being formed when like exo jane was around and it was like I went to the grocery store and a man said something rude to me and that proves this about the world. And like, I really had to work on like turning that off in my intimate relationships and being like, you're not looking for an op-ed headline. You're looking for like having a
1: conversation. It's funny because there are a lot of good things about that. I mean, you, you describe that and I'm like, oh, that's nice. I like that girl. That's cool. You know, I mean, this is like something that, you know, we don't believe anymore, but it's kind of like just means that you're alive and you're sensitive and you're taking in the world that you are actually walking around, feeling offended a lot. You know, that just means that, you know, we take it so seriously as you're one of those people who's offended all the time. And it's like, it's actually really normal for someone in their twenties to be offended by our culture because our culture is insane. And wretched and broken in many ways. And it it is normal to turn on the TV and see a Gillette ad, man, manly, many, men, men, man. And just say, what? You know, especially because when you're in college, I mean, when I was in college, I was drunk most of the time, but I also didn't watch a lot of TV. You know, you don't even, you're just not that in touch with pop culture when you're in college. So you get out of college and suddenly you're working in environments that, don't make any sense. And you're feeling like a, just a, an alien from another planet. It's like a sign of life when you are offended at that age, you know? And it's a, it can be a sign of life when you're 80 and you're offended. It means you're, you're, you haven't stopped noticing. Heather, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you, Shannon.
0: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth and Torre Dominguez. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. Today, Heather and I are going to talk about her advice column, Ask Polly, um, and we're going to get a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look on how it works. I wanted to ask you if you could give us a little peek into what it's like to have the Ask Polly inbox um, in your hands. How many letters do you get and how do you decide what you're going to answer?
1: I'm going to say it varies depending on how popular a column, a a specific recent column was. i get probably get like about 30 letters a week. I really just decide what to answer based on the kind of mood I'm in and what I'm thinking about at the time. It's pretty all over the map what kind of thing. I'm going to feel like answering. I'll go through stages. If I write kind of a blockbustery he sounds bad for you, dump him or like a, you know, just like a r- really rousing column. I mean, I sound like I'm cynical about it, but I love writing those kinds of columns. I love getting a really good letter that where you can just say, "Oh god, like you just feel like you know exactly what you want to share." with this person and you care and you just want them to feel it. You know, I mean, that's a great feeling, but, um, but when I get a ton of letters about bad boyfriends, for example, I'll just be like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to write it. I don't want to answer another bad boyfriend letter. I like it when I write about, um, creativity and art because I love answering questions about that. And I love thinking about the creative process and how to get through Break through the shame and of trying to create things and why you should keep trying and and also just escaping the oppressive idea that if you're doing something and you're not uh, professional, you're not paid for it or you're not you know admired for it, it's just you're just a wannabe who's just like tooling around with a hobby. I hate the word hobby. Um, so I love, I love questions about how do I get started with something? I don't know. I basically just wake up in the morning and read, you know, three or four letters. And then I find one and I'm like, this one, this is the one. Um, it's not a scientific process. People sometimes write to me and say, uh, to Polly's assistant. I just want, you know, I don't know if this will make it through the slush pile And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm Polly's assistant. Here I am. That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com/thewavesplus to become a Slate Plus member today. slate.com/thewavesplus.
0: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.